1997, the book I Kiss Dating Goodbye was released. It was an instant hit. Over 1.2 million copies were sold. It was marketed as the step the church needed to take to get beyond dating culture and overcome sexual sin. Just over a year later, its author, Joshua Harris, married his wife, Shannon. Now a celebrity within the evangelical world, Josh would pastor a church for 17 years before leaving ministry and moving to Vancouver to pursue a theology degree at Regent College. By 2016, just under 20 years after the book's publication, Josh began to reconsider his life's most influential work. Over the next three years, he would apologize publicly for the hurt and harm he believed the work caused. By 2019, Josh announced he and his wife Shannon were getting a divorce. Moreover, Josh no longer considered himself Christian. If anything marked the end of the purity movement, it was this. Much of this is well known, but what many of our listeners might not know is that Jonathan, his wife Madison, and I all knew the Harrises after their move to Vancouver in 2015. Speaking personally, I had many, many conversations with Josh throughout my three years at Regent. I considered him a friend. But this story isn't about him. There's another side to the story that hasn't been told, that doesn't make the media, and yet deserves to have a voice. This year, the first retrospective on the whole incident has dropped. Though not from Josh, but from his wife. The one who was in the background throughout this entire saga. Her newest book, The Woman They Wanted, hit shelves only a few weeks ago, revealing an entirely new side to the story. Today, in an exclusive interview, we ask our friend Shannon to tell us her side of the story, the one that hasn't been heard until now. Like many episodes, you'll likely be challenged. You'll likely want to protest or offer advice. But the goal for this episode is just to listen. Buckle up. Hello and welcome to another episode of Spiritually Incorrect. We are live with Shannon Harris, and we're going to go ahead and jump right into the interview with her. Jonathan, start us off. This is not the average book or interview. This is deeply personal. What was the process like of deciding to write such a deeply vulnerable book? <laughs> the, the funny thing about that question is that actually this was going to be a musical and COVID happened. Okay. Yeah. So I, I actually wasn't starting out thinking this was going to be a book. I knew I wanted to tell my story. I felt like that was something that was important for me to do, just even in finding my own voice. And also I was coming out of, I don't know how much your listeners know, but I had come out of a 20-year time in a very controlling kind of church environment. 
so I was really establishing a new baseline of myself, you know. <laughs> so it was it was a really important time for me to I think start doing work. It was important time for me to start using my voice and saying what I thought and felt and part of that was, you know, I'm an artist, so part of that was putting out creative work into the world. So I had planned to tell this story as a musical. I had lots of ideas. I had actually signed a contract. I had written the synopsis. I had written some music. And then COVID happened. And my the playwright I was going to work with got stranded on a really random island with her husband on a trip. And she couldn't get back into the States. And we couldn't do it. So I decided that, you know, for me, we're all just sitting around in our houses that the time was now for me to do something with this. This is a painful story for me, and I didn't want to, I wanted to close this chapter of my life in some way that was significant for me, but I wanted to move on also. And so knowing that I had connections with Josh and, and the publishing world, I used those connections, and I said, I think I'm going to write it as a book. And so I approached his the same agent that he used for I Kiss Dating Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm po totally putting you on the spot here. Do you have a chorus line or a favorite thing from what the musical would have been? Like there was there was there a specific like I kiss dating goodbye. Like is there something? Come on, there's got to be something. <laughs> no, I hadn't gotten that far yet, but I ha I had more images in my head. I had like robots, like we were going to be church. There was going to be a whole scene with robots where we're all kind of getting on the robot gear and we're all wearing the same clothes and then we start I don't know it was just fun for me I think that would have been a more fun way to process this story I think the book had to be more intimate and more getting into my personal space which was honestly that was hard <laughs> so going through the book writing about this and going through all the most personal moments of your marriage, of your life in church, what was that process like? Did you find it healing, cathartic, or did you find it quite difficult? Both. I think it was very healing for me to, it was very, it was both. It was very, both very difficult and very healing. And crucial to this story is who you were before I Kissed Dating Goodbye in Purity Culture, before your ex-husband, before you met before all the fame that came with that, would you be willing to tell us a little bit about your childhood and growing up and what your early life was like when you were Shannon Hendrickson rather than <laughs> Shannon Harris? Yeah. I grew up in a secular, non-religious home. My mother had been raised uh, strict Catholic. So she did the nuns and the Catholic school and all of that. And so I think she had been affected by that in a way that, you know, was it was negative for her. She's a very she's kind of a free spirited, strong woman. I think she felt very contained. So she really put on on us that religion would be something that we'd kind of take care of later as as adults. But my family is a great family. My parents are just wonderful, wonderful people. I was born in New Jersey. I was I came out of the womb singing and doing theater. In fact, my, when I was three years old, my Montessori teacher told my mother, she's going to be an actress or a singer. And my mom was like, okay, because I guess I was really loud and my voice carried across the classroom. And yeah, I, had, I have one brother. So I grew up doing a lot of music. I taught myself to sing very early. I went to performing arts high school. 
one of the things that happened was my parents divorced when I was nine. And I do think that played into some of my, some of the things I was looking for at the time that I got involved with this church. So my parents divorced. And when they divorced, I actually ended up living with my father and my brother from the time I was about 10 or 11, all throughout my high school years. So it was like I had this traditional family when I was little, and then a very non-traditional family for the second part of my life. So I think, I think that led to some confusion for me about women. As I said in my book, I, I really felt the difference between a home with a woman in it and a home without a woman in it. There, there was a very stark difference in that. And, and my parents divorced amicably and they're amazing people. Like they're still friends. They still help each other. I marvel at the wonderfulness of the family that I came from despite that. But I do think the divorce impacted me. It really kind of crushed me. And so I think, I think I was actually really looking for a situation. I was looking to not ever get divorced. And I think I saw that as something the church could give me because divorce wasn't even allowed. <laughs> so, so here we are, and I'm divorced. <laughs> You talk in the book about how your relationship never really felt like it was yours. Would you yeah. be willing to tell us a bit about your and your ex-husband's courtship? Uh, yeah. And I use that word very intentionally, courtship. How did fame and I kissed dating goodbye and all of this play into your early relationship? Yeah. For me personally, I did not quite understand the magnitude of Josh's budding career and the audience that he had in his mind, you know, and, and so, so I had taken a temporary job at the church when his first shipment of books arrived. So he literally opened that box and handed me the first signed copy of I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Were you dating at that point? No, we were, no, we were they not never dating. dated, John. Oh, we never, we never dated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry. Oops. And and so that's just a random fun tidbit, I think, that I had a crush on him from the very beginning. But to answer your question, I think there was just a tremendous amount of yeah, I mean, I think the moment the moment it started, the the that was the same moment it stopped really being about us. We had, as I said, it was a high control religious environment. So I think the man who was grooming my husband to become the next senior pastor had his own reasons for why he wanted to get Josh married. Part of that is he didn't hire single pastors. So he wanted to hire Josh and put him in a position of leadership, but he needed him to be married to do that. And then on top of it, because Josh did write this book and it happened to kind of explode, I think it put a lot of pressure on Josh to feel like he had to. Nobody wanted Josh to mess up. Josh didn't want to mess up. And by mess up, I mean physical sexual purity was, it was a purity movement. And in his mind, having any kind of physical activity was this slippery slope into hell, you know? So he was, I think, very aware of his position. And again, I I think he was being, he, he saw himself as a model. And I think our pastor CJ was using him as a model as well. So 
it became about a ridiculous standard of holy of of sexual purity that was like beyond normal. I mean, I I say now that there was really this missing body in in my Christianity, and I don't think anything illustrates that better than my own relationship with Josh. We were so holy, we were floating. <laughs> <laughs> We've touched on that a little bit. You've talked about being a robot and what it was like early on dating Josh, excuse me, courting Josh. What was it like just generally at Covenant Life Church and Sovereign Grace as a woman? You describe it being like numbing and it chipping away at what you felt like was your sense of identity. Could you walk us through some of that? Yeah. Like to me, those are two different things I could talk about, the numbing and the identity piece. I think the identity piece saying chipping away is really putting it lightly. I think this was an an abusive environment that actually took authority and agency and autonomy away from women. And they did that by using a specific interpretation of the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis. And I can go into detail with that if you want, or I can also talk about the ways that I think the church numbed women to their own selves. If you're happy to talk through both, we're happy to hear both. Well, with the, with the Genesis interpretation, I kind of call it the five Ps. There's the position of Eve. The interpretation is that God creates Adam and then Eve, and so this addresses her position. Then God creates Eve from Adam's rib, and this is like addressing her personhood. It's saying she's not really sh- her own. She's been made from this piece of Adam, so that makes means she's not really her own. And then there's her purpose. So this interpretation says that God has given Eve the role of helper to Adam, and so that means she doesn't have her own purpose. And then Eve is curious, of course, and listens to the serpent. She trusts herself, and that's bad. And I call that perception or wisdom. And then finally, she gets punished for this. So this is a little acronym I came up with just to remember it for myself, that this whole interpretation really takes away a woman's identity by undermining all of these parts of her. You use the word interpretation consistently there. Have you found other interpretations of these passages that have been more affirming? Or has that has it been a real struggle to find any alternative way of seeing those? I haven't actually done a lot of looking for other interpretations. I know they exist because I talk to other women. I talk to other pastors and people who go to churches that interpret this differently. So I, I wouldn't say I've spent any time really studying new ways to interpret it. I just believe they, they definitely exist. And, and when I went to Regent for that short time, that was really obvious that this was a very specific interpretation, one I really think is abusive. I think I was going to talk a little bit about how women get numbed. And, and I, think, I think the simplest way I can say it is that in the church, women are being asked to look outside of themselves for the answers. And there's a dismissiveness of women's own wisdom and kind of that, you know, consulting with your own soul on matters and, and the whole concept of self and all of these things kind of, there seem to be a lot of fear around the self and 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 there seems to be a lot of fear around women women's bodies bodies in general and sexuality and i think all of that plays into how women get get really numb to themselves because they're being told they need to look outside for authority they're being told their their wisdom system is broken 
They're being shamed for their bodies. And so all of these things kind of add up to a woman really feeling like she's bad and she's wrong. And she steps away from herself. She pushes away from her own self. She wants distance from herself because she's being taught that these things are wrong, her emotions. I think these are all things that are kind of could be viewed as wild. These are things that can't be contained, like sexuality, emotions, your body. These are all things that I think historically men are afraid of in women. And so they've sought to contain them by saying they're bad and we're just going to stick them over here in this box. And that way they will be contained. And that's a huge problem for women. <laughs> Obviously. I'm sorry, I'm like shouting. I get I start to shout when it comes to this. <laughs> it's it's great. Well, no, let okay. let those big musical vocals uh resound. Let it rain. <laughs> Thank you. In men's defense, I don't necessarily think all men are out to do this. I don't think men even necessarily realize this. I think this theology is sort of, in, it's embedded in patriarchy. And yes, I think some, some men do realize that this is abusive, but I think it also gets taught just out of kind of, like I said, it's just sort of become some of the fabric of religion. And that's why I think we need to talk about it. And that's why I think women need to share their stories. That's why I wrote this book. Because I think, I think women actually can help men to understand how this plays out and how this has affected them. And I think it's obviously affected men as well and people in general. Yeah, kind of on that, you said it could help men as well. What do you mean by that? The conversation about the effects of patriarchy doesn't just apply to women. It applies to all people. It, it applies to, I think men is a great example because men have been asked to, just as I was asked in the church to live up to a very specific standard of womanhood. I think that applies to men in terms of masculinity, like these these very traditional roles of masculinity, of of being unemotional or not ever crying or feeling like you have to have the answers or solve all the problems. I, I just, yeah, I think that these roles need to be kind of softened so that we realize we're all human beings here. We're all, as, as humans, we all have a range of, of strengths and weaknesses and characteristics and all of these things. And we're, we're, this, we're very much the same in many ways, I think is what I'm getting at. For me, at least, it's hard being as muscular and handsome and rugged <laughs> as I am all the time. And yet I feel yeah. this, this need no. to be stunning Caveman. constantly. And this doesn't just happen. Yes. You don't just wake up like this right here. Like this is, right. this is effort. <laughs> you have to work. That's how it. I wake up, John. <laughs> Unshaven, beard down to here. <laughs> That's great. In the book, you wrote these words. The fact of the matter is my body had never been properly invited to our religion not beyond being a functional piece of machinery anyway. What my body could provide for others was the first order of business, producing children, pleasure for my husband, meals, a clean house, volunteer service. Women had not been encouraged to experience their own presence, let alone their sexuality. Could you maybe say a bit more about how you felt the body was seen in your church community? As an extension of that, the female body as well. Sure. I think one of the 
first kind of eureka moments I had when I was in Vancouver and around the time I, I met your wife, Madison, and was at Regent, I realized that there had been a missing body to my Christianity. I wrote a little piece called The Missing Body of My Christianity. And it was sort of this kind of moment where I realized we didn't value the body. And in fact, we kind of just wanted to get it out of the picture. And I kind of, I kind of really already talked about it, just all of the things that go along with the body, the emotions, sexuality. And I think these things are things that the church historically hasn't quite known how to handle because it's not black and white. It's not containable. So I think there was a, a fear of the body. And in particular, the female body, I think, at least in my church experience, and I'm only talking about my own church experience because I don't have a wide experience at different churches. So I'm not putting all churches into this box, but I think at my church, the female body was seen as a problem. It was seen as a threat. So again, the response is just to kind of shut it down. Well, and you mentioned Regent there, because Regent College has such an emphasis on the incarnation, on yeah. embodiment, on creation and nature. And that's that's interesting that that was part of that shift for you. Yeah. And I'm sure I got, I'm sure I was learning some of that there. I mean, I wasn't a, an official student. I was just kind of a leech. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I was going <laughs> to... I was going to say like an auditor or something complimentary. <laughs> a leech. A leech. Yeah. Yes. yes. I yeah. was just hanging around like, you know, it was such a positive place. And I loved that, the emphasis on the body. And I, I think that helped me a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And I, I brought Regent College up specifically because now they have to repost this and it'll help our viewership. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. All for the viewers. All for the viewers. So in your book, you talk a bit about the connection between love and respect in marriage. Could you elaborate Mm -hmm. a little bit on that for us? Yeah. In the very end of my book, the final chapter, I'm kind of concluding. The first six chapters are more like stories. And then the last chapter is more me kind of tying up the stories with my bigger thoughts. And one of the pieces is really talking about fear and love and respect and kind of the dynamic and the relationship between all of those things. And I think because we've talked about the body and the church and the fear that I think the church has about women and and the body and the things we've already talked about, (laughs) I think fear really hinders love. And so I think it creates a huge barrier to love. And I don't think you can actually love and disrespect someone at the same time. I think fundamentally, if you don't have respect for someone or something, you can't love them. I think you have to address your fear before you can move into issues of love and respect. So I guess the bottom line is there's a barrier with fear to these things. As I think about complementarian marriages, so my marriage was a complementarian marriage where a man was given more power in the hierarchy, there was more, more position a higher position in this marital dynamic. That position has been given because there is a fundamental lack of respect for women in this culture, in in the church culture that I was in. So we've been talking about how for years, the real Shannon was buried beneath this myth of a perfect Christian housewife. I love the analogy of the robots because I think anyone who's attended a church like that 
gets that immediately. My question then is, what events in your life started to chisel away at the facade of this perfection that you felt you needed to put up? I would say depression, first and foremost. I think what I was experiencing was what I was living out was unsustainable, really, by any human standards. And so depression started to become a real problem for me. I I just couldn't keep making myself function in, in this way where my entire life was, I don't want to say giving is not really the right word because it was much more than just giving. It was, it was utter and total denial of really who I am as a person and, and who I am as a human being too, to not be able to acknowledge my own wants, needs, and feelings, wants, needs, and values and feelings, all of those things were really denied. And I don't think anybody can sustain that forever. So depression was really, really one of the things. Our church also really fell apart. When our church fell apart, it really allowed me, I, I no longer had people watching me in the same way because I was really under a microscope for a really long time. And that also was a very uncomfortable, unsustainable place for me to be. So once all of that kind of blew up, it really allowed me to step out and be a little bit more free. And also my children were starting to grow up and I was starting to see the oppression that I was feeling. I wasn't able to necessarily see it that well for myself, but I could see that I didn't want to put that on them because they were starting to enter their teen years. And as your kids grow up in these, you know, in a church like mine, the kids were going to have to perform. They were going to have to be the good little teenagers. And I did not want them to have to be the good little teenagers. I wanted them to be free to figure stuff out and make mistakes and not be under a microscope. So I think I was actually more able to see the oppressiveness of my situation through my own kids. So those were a couple, a few of the reasons that it started to open up for me. I mean, we haven't gotten into the full extent from the interview, but some of the things that were put on you in your community, they were, I don't know if I have a question here. I'm just sort of reacting, but yeah. like the, the woman who sat you down and said, you have to give up your dreams. Yeah. I think that from my limited perspective, women are a, an important part of how this abuse actually continues because women themselves don't necessarily see themselves as oppressed in this culture because it's all ordained by God, right? And if you truly believe that this interpretation and complementarian marriage and my husband has more authority, you don't necessarily, when, when you're in that culture, you don't necessarily see it as abuse. And so then you're teaching it to other women and you're passing it on to your children and to your other women but you really believe it. And so I think that is a, a really significant part of why church abuse sometimes continues. I don't think it's the only reason, <laughs> but it's why I think we need to keep talking about it. Well, continuing on this, this question, sort of a sub-question about it, you already started to talk about Regent and Vancouver, and you mentioned Madison earlier. What role did this move play? I mean, you said you got away from that church and yeah. the constant hyper focus on you as a family. So you got away from that, but what were you getting to? Because you, you still live in Vancouver. Now there seems to be something discovered there that was freeing. What role did that move play? Well, I think it removed the props. I think in terms of 
my marriage, for example, was a prop of sorts. So it was our role as pastor and wife was very much removed when we got to Vancouver. You know, even just the two of us as a couple were, were no longer, we weren't famous in Vancouver. We weren't known by anyone really in Vancouver. I mean, a little bit at Regent. Josh still had the fame halo. But I would say for the most part, we were just very normal people removed from a life that was very different. And so I think the things that were propping us up, and I, I mean, I prefer not to get too much into my marriage, but it's a good example here that the things that were propping us up were now removed. So I don't know that we were yet to some what we were heading to, but there was a real stripping away of what we were. You emphasize that the church can sometimes stifle our trust in our own voice and that we need to relearn to trust our own instincts and inner wisdom. Yet in other places in the book, you mention that you wish you had trusted more in others, such as wishing you had listened to your mother all those years ago when she originally expressed concern with your new path and this direction you were heading. What do you think the tension is between self and other, individual and community? Is there a way to hold both of those things together? Or is it an either or, either me or everyone else? Well, I think it's a complicated tension. Backing up to my mom, I think there's a big difference between getting advice and letting someone who you know loves you and has shown their love and commitment for you. That kind of person. I think is worth listening to because that person has proven that they have your best interests in mind. That's very different from then a church coming in and saying, we know what's best for you and we're going to tell you what it is and how you have to live. You know, that, that's very different to, to take authority over a human being, to take away their authority of themselves, their autonomy, their agency. That's very different. That's, again, I'm sounding like a broken record, but that is abuse. The question about community and self, I, I definitely think there's a complicated tension there. I mean, we have to have some agreed upon rules like red lights at a stoplight so that we don't all crash into each other. But that doesn't mean we all don't also drive our own cars. So I feel like there's a, to live in community with one another, we do need some baseline agreed upon things. And that's why we never can always agree on those. That's why we continue to have political problems and religious problems, because we can't all agree on the baseline rules. Near the end of your book, you write, the church failed to love and protect me. My husband failed to love and protect me. I failed to love and protect me. What was the process like of coming to terms with your own role in all of this? Yeah, that was kind of brutal. <laughs> I think, as I've said, I think, make no mistake about it, it was spiritual abuse what I experienced. And that's my number one concern. And I want to define actually spiritual abuse because it is actually physical abuse, mental abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse. Because I think it's really easy to think spiritual abuse sounds like abuse light, and it's not. It's actually abuse heavy. But at the same time, I had to come to this recognition that I also made choices in my own life. I was afraid to move to New York City and pursue my dreams. 
So I think I went to the church to distract myself from what I really felt like I was supposed to be doing. And that was immaturity. I contributed to the place where I ended up, if that makes sense. But I think this topic is a delicate one because whenever you're dealing with actual abuse, inside the system of abuse, and especially in this system of abuse, you can't, you don't necessarily see it as abuse again because it's been ordained by God. And so you're just doing your best to please God. And so I think there's a very specific and certain kind of helplessness that comes along with this kind of spiritual abuse that churches are inflicting on women like myself that makes it really hard to get out. And it makes it really hard to see even your own oppression. And for that reason, I don't think it's necessarily fair, not your question, but it's not fair to put all this burden on women to understand their situation clearly because they can't. So I feel like in some ways I got lucky that I was able to see it for what it was. And then after I was able to heal from the anger of that, then I could also see how I contributed. How had I made certain decisions and trusted myself more and faced some of my smaller fears? Because when I actually came back and healed and, and was doing better, I realized and I, and I had to pick up my music career where I left off. You know, what was funny is that I had to face the same fears that I had had 20 years before. I was still afraid to put my music out. I was still afraid. What if I'm not going to be good enough? What if I'm not going to? What if everyone hates my music? What All the same fears that had kept me from going to New York City or pursuing my dream 20 years ago were still just there waiting for me. And I had to step through them this time. And that surprisingly was not easy. It was just as hard. I think, I mean, maybe not just as hard because I was more motivated, but <laughs> I thought that was interesting though. You know, you've been really public and very honest, and we're very grateful for that, about your transition away from conservative Christianity over the past few years. How's that been received, and what's the response been like? It has been strong on both ends. I have received a considerable amount of criticism as well as a considerable, considerable amount of support. I've received 11-page letters of people telling me that th how disappointed they are in me and how I've displeased God and everyone and what a failure I am. And I've been shamed to no end by those kinds of people. But I've also heard from, hun you know, not hundreds, but tons of women and men and people of all shapes, sizes, genders, sexual orientations who have been really encouraged by my story. It's been a mix. After reading the darkest parts of your story, I imagine it will be easy for many of our readers, of your readers, to see why you wanted to distance yourself from institutionalized religion. Yet your words sometimes seem to leave the door open for a divine beauty, truth, and goodness, which is higher than the rhetoric and hierarchies of men. Do you still see any place for God? Is that a question you're thinking about right now? Or do you need more time and distance to refine yourself before you can even think about refinding God? I think I will always be a, what I call a spiritual person. So I don't think the door is completely shut for me on God. 
However, I have days where I'm sure I'm an atheist and then other days where I'm like, well, maybe (laughs) I think ask me in 10 years. (laughs) I think I'm still working that out. and, And I do think that there may be a place for me and church and religion later. But right now I am I am still taking a break and I think it's healthy for me to take that break. But I think I will always see myself as a spiritual person, and, and there may be, may be a place for God in the future. Shannon, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's so good to see you both again. You yeah. as well. Thanks again for listening to the Spiritually Incorrect Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider leaving us a five-star review and clicking that subscribe button. That way you'll keep up to date on all our new episodes. Little things like that can really help a little podcast like us go a long, long way. And if you like this episode, join our Patreon. For only $5 a month, you'll get more of this talk. After this talk, we have to have a great conversation with Shannon about her relationship to her own family and how they actually pop up in her own book. So check that out for only $5 a month. Go to spirituallyincorrectpodcast.com right now and see what you're missing out on. Special thanks to Jordan Birch, whose song Starry Night provides the intro and outro for this podcast. You can hear more of his music on YouTube or Spotify.